HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right, Thursday at 1 o'clock, and once again, you've tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a beautiful day in sunny Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today, we're thrilled to have a, uh, a repeat offender, a repeat guest, a repeat uh, in-studio personality, Ben Flanner, head farmer and president of the Brooklyn Grange, he- here with us in studio. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on. It's great to check in, um, and we need to do it more. So I know there's a lot of ground to cover. I mean, you guys are, are heading into your fourth season at the Grange and your first full season at the new farm. So so what's kicking? I know it's February. Um, what, what does that mean for you guys? Well, it means that we just ordered our seeds, and they're starting to come in. Um, we are also in the process of building a new greenhouse at the new farm in the Navy Yard, so going through all the filing and permitting process, dealing with the city and everything to get that going. And we can't wait to start getting things started. It's really basically time to start onions and some some root crops and and even some leafy greens like kale and chard that can handle a little bit of cool weather. Nice. Now, the weather has been so wonky this year. I mean, you know, all over the course of last year, but even just in February, it's like 60 degrees. It's like freezing. Um, how do you, how do you, how does that like factor into your planning and your planting? Well, you really can't predict too much. Last season was exceptionally warm, probably one of the warmest springs on record and driest, ironically. Um, and we, we could kind of feel that coming when we were around now. I remember we were having 60 degree days and we started tilling the beds probably a little bit early. Um, but, but you really can't say for sure. So in general, we're sticking to our, our normals, our strategy and schedule, but, um, it's part of farming. You got to be ready to take advantage of your opportunities at the same time as also dealing with negative effects of the weather. So if you if you sense a hot streak and the soil's workable and it's dry, uh, you can get some seeds in remarkably early, especially like sugar snap peas, radishes, things like that that can really handle some cold weather. So you know, I hear a lot about 
kind of the the far, you know the farmer's uh, winter garden or, or winter planning where you you know you have the the time off December January you, you curl up with the seed catalogs yes by the hot fire exactly <laughs> so so did you can you tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe if you're excited about anything in particular that you have coming into the the farm this year sure well well actually winter's been quite busy ever, ever since late late fall as the farm was wrapping up we we've been having events and being involved in the community and things like that. We had a, a farm hack session up at the up at the farm at, at Northern, and there was a whole farm hack session in New York City, which is a first. Um, New York City is developing a farming community, and that's a that's a group that an organization that started through um, through Massachusetts, and they get people together and essentially talk about, hey, how did you rig a tool? How did you come up with a a new idea or some way to just make your day a little bit easier? Because that's that's farming and especially small farmers have, have uh, a void of, of really sm- smart, well-laid-out tools and, and strategies and like that. So it must be interesting. I mean, I, I think a lot here on the radio about how much kind of technology and, and information sharing has changed in just the last five years. I think we were talking with uh, uh, some, Severin, I think, from the Greenhorns, who had just set up... Right, like Severin a, was there. Yeah, she had uh-huh. set up like a, a a mobile alert. So like if her greenhouse temp fell below a certain level, she would get, you know, a text message um, to, cool. her, to her phone. I mean, how, have you been talking about that those kind of uh, technological innovations and interventions with farming? And, and is there, you know, there's a farm hack group. Um, is that like the best or the only resource or where should people be looking for kind of innovative uh, small scale tools and, and thought? Right. There, there's things popping up all over the place, actually. There's, there's groups that are, are setting up ways for farmers and consumers, particularly in the city, to communicate, um, sort of like online marketplaces, online um, sort of like prepaid or pre-sold farmers markets, sort of CSA hybrids, that stuff. There's definitely some tech brains and money going into that. There's a new software program called Ag Squared that has just started about a year ago. And then um, also there's a great another organization similar to FarmHack called Slow Tools, and we went up there to the conference up at Stone Barns in Terrytown. And uh, Elliot Coleman and, and Barry Griffin have been working really hard on devising some tools. They're working on an electric tractor and um, working with Johnny Seeds up in Maine. They just came up with a new automatic greens harvester. And it's, it's really like nothing that's ever been uh, available to small farmers. It runs based on a cordless drill. Uh, that's the essentially the engine to it. So you just plug it in and recharge it. So it's very mobile and a uh, quick way to harvest. You know, you could probably speed up your harvesting time for fresh greens mix, which is always a, a very labor intensive process. Probably speed it up by four, five, six times. But um, we'll find out. We just ordered one, so we can't wait to start using. Oh, that. that's exciting! Well, I know that must be kind of a thing. It's, as industries look to invest in in new, you know, tool and technology development, they're probably looking to supply to a larger market than maybe is represented by farms of your scale or your type. I mean, as we see the growth in, in urban production, do you anticipate that, that you guys are going to be able to command more of a voice for, for resources here in the city or in other parts of the country? Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, also, a lot of our farming practices are common to other small farms. Like this green harvester would be just as applicable to anybody else. So, um, I think yeah. If you just look at the urban market, that's that's still just so infinitesimal. But um, if you lump it into the small farm, you know the the less than fifty acre or so farm or something like that, there's there's a lot of a lot of people. 
So I haven't been over to the new location. Can you can you remind me and our listeners a little bit about what the setup looks like there? And I'm also curious how you guys ended up in that spot. Sure. So uh, just to lay it out, our first farm is one acre, and it's it's on Northern Boulevard in Long Island City. And then our second farm that we started this past spring in May, uh, May and June, uh, is in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It's an acre and a half. It's on an 11-story building. And it's uh, completely covered with a green roof system and lightweight soil with compost. And we grow vegetables on the whole thing. Um, we have a, a long lease on it. And we have 24-7 access, access to the roof. And uh, we, can, we run a farm up there. And then we, we grow and sell the vegetables. We sell them to restaurants. We sell through a CSA. And we also set up at several farmer's markets. Now, how long is a long lease? 20 years. Wow. That's that's really yeah. long. I mean, we got to feel like we own it because we're constantly making improvements, facilities improvements, upgrades. So it really feels good to know that that stuff's not going anywhere. And was that a challenge? I mean, when you were entering into negotiations with regards to the lease, were they like, yeah, year to year? And you're like, mm, not going to work. I mean, what was that process? <laughs> like, how did you kind of communicate the importance of having a, a longer term stake in the Sh- property? Sure. And, and it's no doubt one of the challenges of urban farming, the fact that you do need some long term stake in what you're doing. Um, but you, you just have to explain yourself and landlords understand that, that, you know, so much time and, and effort goes into it, but it's definitely, you know, it can be a deal breaker if the opportunity is not there. Um, so finding the actual, the space at the Naval Yards, I mean, how did that, how did that mm. come, come into? Um, I'm trying to think exactly how, how it all happened, but, um, actually I, I was introduced via Bob Lewis from the state ag markets and uh, to, to the president, Andrew Kimball, at the Navy Yard. And we, we basically went in for a, for a meeting. Actually, David Selig came with and, and Chase. It's the three of us. And um, we went and basically just fended off questions the whole time. <laughs> Try to answer them as maturely and thoroughly and simply as possible. And I, would, I guess you could call that essentially the vetting process. And there was some site visits up to the farm on Northern Boulevard, et cetera. And um, everybody agreed and decided that it was a good idea. Awesome. So um, I know that you're just tucking into your, your first full season there, but do you envision yourselves taking on additional properties and kind of continuing to grow your your uh, land area here in the city? Or are you going to kind of hang tight with the two and a half acres that you're managing now? Sure. We, uh, we're always looking for additional spaces. We don't want to expand too quickly. I definitely say that we're still growing into the area that we're at now because we more than doubled last year and, and we do grow super intensively. There's a, a lot of vegetables coming out of the ground. Um, however, the, the scale has actually been really, really important for us. It's allowed us to function as more of a team. We've all developed our roles and been able to specialize a little bit rather than wearing too many hats because you have to be salesperson, entrepreneur, sort of a real estate person, uh, farmer, obviously, all that stuff. So I, I think a little bit more scale would actually be good for the business because we could hire a couple more people and um, and all just get a little bit better at what we're actually trying to focus on. Uh, we have a team of, of four, five right now with a couple other part-time people that have, have merged their way in. Um, but it's a great, really great team. We're looking forward to a, a a fun season but yeah we're always looking for more space because it, it's it's a good system one of the things i always find so interesting about uh producing food in an urban environment is the kind of infrastructure around the the equipment the soil um and, and other tools that you need water in, in particular is some, something i'm super curious about but 
Um, can you talk a little bit about what the resources for some of the basic necessities from, you know, soil to building materials and what are things that are specific to the urban gardener and are you, are you getting them, you know, are you able to get them locally or, or how does, how do, how do you find those resources? Sure. Uh, we, there, there's a, a couple different things we, we start out with. So just to, ex- just to describe the green roof in a slightly more detail, we essentially take the waterproof membrane of the roof that's already there, and then we put down a few simple layers to allow for drainage and appropriate uh, placement of the water, etc., when, when we get a heavy rainstorm. And then there's soil above that. So once the, once the roof is installed, obviously we're not using heavy tractors or you know, huge equipment and things like that. But we basically just have an arsenal of hose and rakes and shovels, the kind of things that you'd expect at, at, at any farm or, or even backyard. And then, uh, you know, through the years, so we started super basic and we were doing a lot more seeding by hand and things like that. But through the years, we've found some new tools that are ex- exceptionally helpful. There's a four row seeder that, that Johnny sells that, that we've, you know, it's, it saves seeds, plus it saves a ton of time when you're laying down your greens. So you get a perfect, like beautiful, thick carpet of, of greens when you're growing them, maximizing every inch. Um, there's an earthway seeder, a couple kind of cool tools. And then in terms of inputs, um, everything that we need is right here in the city because people are throwing away constantly. Just think of the millions or billions of pounds of organic scrap that goes into landfills every day because New York City is not so good with composting, at least not yet. So we can tap into that. Um, even just yesterday, I got a phone call from Grady's Cold Brew. We're going to start getting about 300 pounds of um, spent coffee grounds from them each week. We pick up from Mass Brothers. Um, and Kavu, the two chocolate companies in, in Brooklyn, we get their chocolate husk. We use that as a mulch to keep the weeds out, and it also has a lot of nitrogen in it. Um, after the hurricane, we <laughs> partnered up with Kings County Distillery in the in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and got about 80 yards of, of wood chip dump because the people that were taking down the trees and chipping them, they typically have to pay tolls and fuel and time and everything to take them to New Jersey, or there may be a place in Queens, but we were, just, we were able to take them right in in the Navy Yard, and we're setting up a big compost pile with that. So just to name a few, we have all these inputs available to us, and it's actually really fun trying to track them down efficiently, too, because it does get tough hauling heavy things around the city. Yeah, no, I remember when I was up at Flying Pigs Farm, we used to get maybe once a month kind of a call from, you know, a a green bean company, and they wanted to know if we wanted kind of the pointy ends that they snapped off the beans for the frozen beans. pigs like that. Yeah, those are like, or I got a call from <laughs> a, f- a fast food company that had, you know, two tons of, of burnt caramel that they like, oh, maybe, you know, because I think those things become a major kind of waste cost for these organizations. But yeah, those hard call or carding fees to get rid of them. And we we're just down in Mexico and um, uh, I was staying at a person that, that has a bio distil- biodiesel distillery. And he was saying that even um, to convert, just to get the oil, he was saying that he gets it super black. But he said it's typical to just feed that to the pigs. I don't know if he meant that literally, feeding dirty oil to the pigs. But essentially the concept of nothing's free Yeah. in some cultures where people are a little bit more ingrained in reusing things versus I'm sure if you went across New York and tried to get some used vegetable oil, you could get it super easily for free from somebody not too shabby well we are gonna take a a short break and when we come back i want to hear a little bit about your time in mexico all right so let's hang some farms involved (laughs) (laughs) 
You're listening to the Blind Benny Remix by Knife Show on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. All right, we are back. You have tuned in to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are in studio with Ben Flanner of the Brooklyn Grange. So, Ben, you took a little trip down to Mexico this winter, so would love to kind of hear uh, about some of your experiences uh, south of the border. Yeah, I did. I just got back two nights ago. Um, You're looking uh, lovely in tan, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't get a ton of sun. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, up at, I went to an urban agriculture conference in Toronto last summer and, and met a person named Fulvio uh, Dianetto, Italian, Italian guy. He's a lichenologist, and he worked with the UN for a while. Um, and he's been living in an indigenous village called Nurio in, in western Mexico, in, in Michoacan, and um, just kind of took the, took the gamble and went out there and visited him. It was really fun. He's doing a lot of experimentations with with organic um, herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers, and he's and he's working with a lot of the farmers, um, converting some conventional farmers to organic, and also helping out organic farmers. He's working with back guano combinations, and um, you know he pulled over on the side of the road when we were on our way back to the village from the town and started picking some wildflowers. I actually didn't even know what they are. One of one of them seemed to be a wild marigold, but he didn't tell me the name of it. And um, said so he's gonna, you know, he started, he took it home and started boiling it. <laughs> so we stayed with this family. We also got to visit an avocado farm. Michoacan is is super avocado territory. There's 110,000 hectares, um, and and I believe they grow about 90 percent of Mexico's Haas avocados, which are like the huge lion's shares of the avocado industry. So we got to tour a, a, a smallish organic avocado farm. Um, asking a lot of questions, and Fulvio claims that he's helped this guy for about ten, fifteen years, and uh, evolved from basically the the you know the fruits were inferior, they were smaller, there was a lot lower yield, and he says he's basically up to equal yield with a little bit more price into the inputs. Um, but it was funny the the guy uh, Julio that that owned the farm. He said, "What's the deal with the Super Bowl?" And uh, I said, oh, the Super Bowl. It, he clearly knew what it was, but picture this conversation in sort of broken English and broken Spanish combo. And he said, what does everybody eat guacamole? And I, said, <laughs> I said, well, no, not everybody eats guacamole, but um, you know, probably uh, about 150 million people eat guacamole at parties. <laughs> Never really thought of that. Turns out they prepare for the Super Bowl ever since December because of the lead time with, with avocado, the avocado industry. 
So it's basically like Mother's Day or Valentine's Day for the flower industry or like Christmas or something. It's like the Super Bowl. Like they've got to stagger their croppings for it and everything. That's awesome. I actually saw an article on that where somebody was, uh, you know, must have been a, a, a more farmer centric publication because they were suggesting moving the uh, Super Bowl to a little bit later um, to better line up with a traditional avocado growing oh, really? season. <laughs> They say it's, uh, well, I mean, nothing's ever equal across the plane because the sun's, the length of day changes. But they say that they can control avocados to get them, you know, outdoor without any climate control to get them so they yield throughout the whole season. And I believe it's by, I didn't get a perfect answer to it, but I believe it's by cutting off the flowers. So the tree flowers, you cut it off and then it'll just reflower right away, especially if you get in a zone where there's not massive, you know, changes in the, in the climate. I, I wonder, and um, you know, maybe this didn't come up on your travels, but we've done a little research on the uh, infiltration of uh, genetically modified uh, corn in Mexico. It's like such a staple and ancient crop for that area of the world. And did did that come up in conversation? Did you did you touch on any of that that kind of influx? Uh, we didn't talk about specifically geneti- genetically modified corn, but uh, one interesting thing, f- funny that you ask, um, th- there's really, really beautiful sort of indigenous blue corn maize. And uh, we stopped at a, a roadside, play- roadside, you know, sort of a taqueria fonda type of a thing, and, and there's just these amazing corn uh, patties, it's like vivid blue. But he said one of the amazing things about that corn is well, where they are, literally, there's only about 20 minutes from the from the avocados, but they'd get frost. Uh, it gets quite cold at night because this is super mountainous. It's old old volcanic region. I think we're about seven or eight thousand feet high, and um, so they can't grow. You know, it's almost like a different climate. But he was saying that this blue corn that has been evolved to that terrain and to that region for a long time, it can t- it can handle a light frost, or it can handle very close to frost. Um, so it's a gamble. It's a gamble to use the higher yielding, you know, more hybrid corn that's available because you could lose your whole crop if the weather doesn't cooperate. So um, I just thought that was interesting. You know, it's, it makes perfect sense. You know, things are bred for different reasons. And once you start going 100% for yield, nobody could blame somebody for doing that. Then you're probably going to sacrifice something else and, and take a risk with it. So maybe you can share a couple of stories uh, about kind of grappling with those questions uh, on your farms. I mean... If you're looking at um, producing a product that's going to do well in the market, I mean, you guys are doing retail markets, you're doing wholesale markets, you're doing CSA markets, Um, you know, you have the kind of unpredictable aspects with regards to weather, you have kind of yield constraints based on your growing. So, you know, when you're kind of sitting down in front of the fireplace with your seed catalog, um, (laughs) you know, maybe you can share some successes and maybe some failures, some seed choices that you might not make again. Right. Um, yeah, specific seed choices and also just kind of crop layouts. And w- when we look at it in the spring and we're getting our, our plans set up, we basically set a percentage allocation or a number of square feet that goes to each crop. And certain crops are a lot more of a gamble than other crops are. I, I think the big one is always tomatoes. You can have a bad year. I remember 2009, the, the late blight came through and... Um, Nearly all organic farmers in the Northeast lost their lost a lot of their crops. Um, so tomatoes are always a gamble for us. Last year, actually, we we went with about our typical square footage area of them, which was a lot of plants between the two farms, 
and probably about 4,000 plants. And, and we had some, definitely had a lot more problems with them than we're used to. So it was a little bit stressful. The yield was down. We had um, all the classics. We had tomato hornworm. We actually had the cabbage moth on them. Um, so a little bit of blossom end rot. You know, and some of these things can be dealt with. Some of them are a lot easier or difficult to deal with. So that, you know, that's an example of a gamble where, where we kind of lost last year. Can I just, um, I want to ask, I'm just, because you guys are, uh, of where you're growing, how, I'm just curious, like, how those things find their way onto <laughs> your even property. <laughs> I, I've, after farming on roofs for f- four years now, I, I've just come to accept that we get nearly every issue, um, you know, with, with very similar frequencies. We have, we have aphids, we have flea beetles. Basically everything that you get at ground level, we get. I guess ten, eleven stories has has almost no impedance to insects or obviously to bees or birds or butterflies or something like that. Wow, that's really surprising. Yeah, maybe the larvae start out in the compost or maybe they just find their way up. Um, the navy yard had lots of mites, little, little tiny itty bitty little red, red and brown mites on some of the landscaping. I noticed it. And, um, you know, within a week or so of noticing up there, we noticed it up at the farm, too. And that was a little bit of an issue this year that we've never dealt with. That was a, sort of a first time for that. And then one other sort of uh, uh, related in terms of, like, we're talking about risk, sort of like risk-reward, um, related more to the concept of monoculture, is that our salad mixes and our greens are sort of our bread and butter. They're they're great. We love selling them. We love harvesting them. They always they always look great, and we get nothing but 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 good feedback on them. But then at the same time, you can get really devastating flea beetle outbreaks if you put down too many brassicas or mustard greens in the middle of the summer, and they're hard to deal with. There's tricks. There's tricks like remay, and you know it's, it's different things with the soil quality and conditions and things like that. But um, you know, they come and they're just hard to get rid of. So if you overplant arugulas and mizunas and things like that, especially in if, if it becomes a hot, dry summer, which is difficult to predict, you can end up kind of kicking yourself for it. Up at the NOFA conference in Saratoga a couple of weeks ago, NOFA is the big organic farmers conference in, in, um, in New York. Uh, you know, I was talking to some other farmers. Everybody had a real bad year for flea beetles, you know. It's hard to predict, although it was a hot spring, so that would be sort of a, a leader, you know, in your, in your brain. Um, you had, you know, had mentioned, uh, that, the being 11, 12 stories up doesn't become an issue for the, the, the pests and some of the other kind of ail- ailments you've seen. I'm curious with the bees. I mean, you guys had this, you guys got hit pretty bad post storm with the, with the, your bee population, your apiary. Maybe you can give, bring us up to speed on, you know, why that is such an important part of your operation and kind of where it's at now. Sure. The, the bees are, are super... Actually, I was working on bee projects this summer. We're starting to get some hives. Uh, start going to start building them pretty soon, and we're getting the last of our arrangements squared away with where they're going to be this year in the in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Last last spring, kind of in, in a rush, we, we ended up putting a, a significant new bee population, um, about 20 hives, and we started an apprentice program, and they were down at ground level, unfortunately fairly close to a dock. And... Um, 80-year flood came through with the hurricane, and we weren't able to move them in time, so so they were damaged. Um, and this year, we're going to move them up to. It's going to be several different roofs, but they're going to be all up on roofs because we just don't it's, can't deal with having them at, at ground level again, especially at New York, where the elevation's like a half meter, <laughs> one meter, whatever it is. Uh, but they're they're super important for a number of reasons. They're they're pollinators. 
Uh, we're going to have several hives at each farm, literally right at the farm. Um, and then also, um, it's it's a good uh, additional revenue stream or, or you know sort of small business expansion for us to produce the honey. There's a lot of demand for local honey in New York City, and obviously not a ton of it can be produced. So so we get lots of inquiries and lots of interest in, in the local honey. People are interested for their immune systems and for allergy problems and things like that all through the winter. Um, every year we sell out super quickly, so there's definitely room for a lot more honey to be produced. Now, you know, you have really been a leader in the city um, with regards to the the two operations that you run. And I know that when you're kind of in, when you've been identified essentially as somebody who knows about a particular area, you're the one everybody calls, you know, every conference, (laughs) every talk. Um, And I think in in a lot of ways, it seems like very quickly, you know, you've become a real, uh, you know, resource. And I'm just wondering, you know, how um, how you kind of manage those inquiries um, from a business perspective, because obviously, like your time and your knowledge has value. But I think that you're probably motivated by a multitude of factors. So how have you been kind of grappling with, you know, requests for your attention and expertise? And and how do you see that kind of developing in the future? Right. Well, in short. Farmers are are super collaborative, and that's all about. We're all about that, and that's that's basically what drew me to it in the first place. The the great energy and the sort of the you know the collaboration friendliness of the farmers that I was meeting. So in terms of specific farming type things, I mean that's all completely shared, open source. Everybody, you know, you you put as much time as you possibly can towards people, especially other farmers or aspiring farmers. Um, and it, then when we get inquiries that are a little bit more niche specific, like, hey, I want to build a green roof for a farm similar to yours in another city or something like that, um, I think it's fair to ask for a consulting fee for that. So sometimes, you know, we do value our time when it's like really specific kind of niche things where we've learned lessons. We've put our, you know, our blood and our sweat into it and, and, and paid the price many times, too. So so in short it's like that but then also there's there's just lots of things going on with the with the grange um it's part of our our mission to be very involved with the community and and always having fun and doing different projects with people and things like that so yeah we're stretched thin (laughs) we're totally stretched thin (laughs) so i know uh if people want to kind of find out more they can visit the website www.brooklyngrangefarm.com um but and i must say that we are just launching our csa for the spring of 2013 so um definitely check out the website for more information about that you can get signed up for the csa two drop-off points yeah one at the navy yard and one in long island city so best ways to support you guys obviously sign up for csa look for you at market ask for you in restaurants um but you also do a series of events is there like an event component to yeah there is that's that's developing slowly and steadily um we it's a beautiful space and the people kind of spoke to us and said hey can we come up here and have a dinner hang out with the vegetables you know get our get our hands dirty or whatever so we do um we do sort of like corporate retreats that's something that's really interesting where say an office getaway kind of a thing where people come out for a team building and they work for a few hours we crack the whip on them a little bit get them dirty and then they sit down and have some some food we have a table at one of the farms, I'm sure, and we have sort of a version of a table at the other farm. Um, and then we've also been um, getting lots of wedding inquiries. It's a, a beautiful space with a beautiful view, and there's an area in the middle of, at the new farm where, where there's no crops. Um, and then also just all sorts of types of interesting little night events, birthday parties, 
Uh, we've been talking about having yeah some other interesting things. It's all it's all very young, but it's but it's uh, working out really well. And it's just a, it's a chance to get a sort of a new group into the into the farm too. You know, if it's not the type that's going to come up in their boots and you know get in the dirt, but they still want to come and hang out. You know. Sure. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks for uh, joining us on this Valentine's Day edition of the Farm Report. Right. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, stay tuned. Coming up next, we have the Grow NYC market update. As always, this and all 30 of our live weekly shows are available for free on iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher Smart Radio or search our archives at www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you like what you hear, and we are pretty sure you're going to, please uh, click the donate button. Huh? Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Pretty (laughs) sure. We like it. Um, Click the donate button. Become a member. um, Check it out. Stay tuned and stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Happy Valentine's Day. And what better way to uh, celebrate than heading out to the Grow NYC Green Markets? We're going to find out what's up. Uh, with We're on the line with Jean. Jean, welcome to the show. Um, so So excited to hear your romantic suggestions for our <laughs> listeners. Well, we have been talking all week about meals to cook with produce and other products from the markets for your Valentine. And having friends over tonight, and we're going to have a big dinner party. Um, And as I was out shopping yesterday at Union Square for ingredients to include in that meal, I happened by Windfall Farm Stand, and they have all of these beautiful microgreens and shoots that are out right now. And it's so nice to see some greenery in the market this time of year, but also they have purple shoots, and they have pink shoots, and all of these different things that can make a really wonderful salad. So I got some really like intense purple buckwheat shoots and some pink radish shoots, and I'm going to put them out on the table tonight. Um, so I was just thinking about, we actually have a, a couple of different producers that produce shoots and sprouts, which are different. I didn't realize that at first. Um, shoots are the aerial part of the plant that grows just above the soil. It's just the first few leaves, and a sprout includes the seed, the root, and the beginning of the shoot. So 
sprouts grow in the water in the dark. They take about three to four days to mature, and then they're aerated. Um, and then, you know, they don't take very long. So then you can get them at the market, and you'll find them at Detalico's Organic Farm or Hudson Valley Organic. And they've got radish sprouts, broccoli sprouts, kale sprouts, and... Um, they're healthy, they're good for you, and they're really delicious in a winter salad. And then as for shoots, um, I started talking with David Rowley of Monkshood Nursery, and he just expanded into, into selling shoots a couple years ago. Um, so I was asking him how exactly he produces them. It's a different process. So he said, first, you soak the seeds, and then you distribute them on trays of potting soil. And then they're kept in the dark um, and it sort of depends on the variety for how long it takes for them to mature. But they expose them to the sun, um, and then he finally kind of goes in and cuts them with some clean scissors and brings them to market. So the whole process takes uh, between eight to three, uh, eight days to three weeks, so not very long. So this is a really wonderful source of revenue for markets uh, for farmers in the winter. Um, and, of course, you could grow them year-round, but they might sprout into something like a whole radish or whole broccoli. <laughs> um, but I'm glad to have the little ones in my salads this time of year. Um, and then in terms of sort of nutritional value, David's stand is really great because uh, he's got sort of nutritional cards on, on every um, sort of box of sprouts. So um, mung beans, for instance, you can read up on their great source of protein. They've got vitamins B and C, calcium, iron, magnesium, potassium, and amino acids. Um, and they've got all kinds of varieties. They've got China rose radish, oriental spicy mustard, sunflower shoots, mung bean shoots, pea shoots, wheatgrass, and buckwheat. And um, then Windfall Farms, you can choose from all kinds of dozens of greens, including buckwheat, purple radish, hungbeet radish, red mustard, mizuna, and arugula. And uh, they say that their sunflower and pea shoots are the most popular because they're the sweetest. Hmm, nice. So, yeah. you know, you mentioned a couple of uh, farmers. And, I, you know, to me, I, I definitely grew up eating uh, sprouts. I know they've been around for a while. But is this a product you've seen at market for, for some time? Or is it kind of a newer thing that, that farmers are, are bringing into the mix? Um, I think there are some farmers, Morris Pitts has been at it um, for some time, and he's sort of a, a staple in the market at this point. He's got a, long, a lot of young people working at, at the Windfall Stand now who are learning to farm the way that he does. So he's been doing this for a while. And then David Rowley, he um, is an organic farmer upstate, and you know he's got really delicious cherry tomatoes in the summer, full range of summer vegetables, and then the tomato blight hit him really hard a couple years ago. And to make up for that loss, he was trying to think about how to expand his business. And um, they kind of did some trial and error and figured out that they had room for greenhouses and that they could grow shoots. So he kind of took that on. It's been really successful. And then he was just telling me on the phone this morning that his neighbor also had land, was really interested in the shoot business, so they've partnered. And now he's got even more greenhouses this winter. Um, so in total, he's got six, and they're about 26 by 132 feet long. He says when you go inside, it's just like a carpet of greens, which sounds really ideal to me in the middle of February. That sounds great. Um, I know like I, whenever I buy shoots or sprouts, I end up kind of munching them out of the bag on my train ride home. They never really make it, they never really make it into anything, but what, <laughs> what would you suggest people doing with them? Should they be able to resist their allure and, and get them back into the kitchen? I have that problem also. Uh, <laughs> but if I get them home, I mean, 
salad, obviously, um, and that if you're making, say, kale salad or cabbage salad, which are other greens that you can find at the market, it's nice to kind of liven them up with some color and variety and flavor. So salad is great. David Raleigh said, I eat them on eggs. I eat them on uh, sandwiches, basically anything. And then also I think you could add them to the top of, say, crostini with goat cheese or some uh, cured meats. I think that would be really great, too. Awesome. So um, looking forward to events. It sounds like you guys are going to be putting a little bit of an international spin on the regional markets with some of your upcoming stuff. Yeah, we have um, a cooking demonstration coming up at Union Square tomorrow, Indian Cuisine. Um, And then next Friday, we're going to do Peruvian Cuisine. So Union Square, come by, get recipes, try samples. Uh, and then looking a little a little way down the road uh, in March, we're going to have a demo on how to make stock, so how to use the leftovers um, from, say, your roast chicken. Um, make sure you use every last bit of that animal. Awesome. Great. Well, Jean, thanks for joining us today and giving us a little bit of a lowdown. Um, looking, I'm a little jealous. Maybe you'll shoot us a little picture of your, your pink and, and purple Valentine's Day sprout and shoot salad so Absolutely. we can take a peek. <laughs> All right. Thanks uh, a lot. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, if you want to find out more about what's happening at markets, uh, schedules, farmers, products, opportunities to volunteer, you can visit them at www.grownyc.org. And as always, tune in next Thursday for another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.